Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison, as always. So, are England's World Cup hopes in tatters after a second defeat in three games? I'll get Harmy's thoughts on their first ever defeat to Afghanistan and their second victory in 17 games at World Cups. And we'll look ahead to what is now a huge game against South Africa on Saturday. Former Australia spinner Brad Hogg will join us to discuss their disastrous campaign. Uh, with back-to-back defeats against India and South Africa. And Essex head coach Anthony McGrath joins us to reflect on the retirement of Sir Alistair Cook at the age of 38. And we'll also react to the news that cricket will be included in the 2028 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. And of course, we'll bring you the final word. So plenty to come over the next hour. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. It's our duty, I suppose, to talk about England. But a large part of me feels that we probably should be talking about Afghanistan because that was just a consummate performance. A brilliant 80 from Ramanullah Gurbaz, fabulous 58 in the middle order from Ikram Alikul and the three spinners. I mean, we call them spinners. It's like calling all footballers footballers. But, you know, they, they are very, very different. Rashid Khan, Mujibur Rahman and Mohammed um, Nabi, absolutely fabulous and I, I, I don't know what you're going to say about England, but they just didn't turn up. No, they didn't turn up. They were very similar to the New Zealand game and the first game where they didn't get their tactics wrong. They looked as though they were a bit shell-shocked when the opposition came at them. You can question quite a bit of things because when you don't win or things don't go, go right, there will always be question marks on preparation, selection of sides, what you do at the toss. I think all that is sort of come to fruition in the first three games. And England haven't really been at the races. I couldn't understand the toss. And we have to be careful of criticising the toss because we're not on the ground. We're not in the middle. We're not seeing the conditions um, with our own eyes. We're going off what TV pictures look at. But England got 3-6-4 in the game before against Bangladesh. And all of a sudden, thinking, England are back. We've got a chance. This looks a flat wicket. Go and get 350 against Afghanistan. And you, that you win the game. But the minute Joss decides to bowl first, get off to the sloppy start they did, you're going, you know, we're going to have to drag this back here because if they get between 275 and 300, their spinners will beat us. And that's what happened. If I said this to John Norman last night when I was on the, on the uh, following on. If the roles had been reversed and England had 
got to eight four and bowl Afghanistan out two fifteen, would have been certain professional performance. Well done, England. The, the sort of lower side, the middle side, it was a banana skin. It was a professional performance. Afghanistan beat us all ends up. They did by a team effort. The batters were better than us in the power play. The bowlers were better than us in the power play. And when they when they got a chance to seize the moment or when when they had to rebuild, they did it better than what England did. So I think all facets, England just weren't at the races against the side who will beat other teams. But as a side, England, first of all, should be beaten. And when you look at where they are now, you said in tatters, well, they got to the 2019 knockout stages, the hardware. If they're going to get the knockout stages in the 2023 World Cup, I think it's going to be even harder to qualify now. I wanted to ask you about what it feels like being out of form. Chris Wokes and Sam Curran bowled four overs each for a combined analysis of none for 87 from, from eight overs. And you might be able to carry one of them struggling for form, but not... But not both. Anyway, um, let's we've got to we've got to get a bumble rant in early because he was brilliant on the Talk Sport Breakfast. Um, this is what David David Bumble Lloyd uh, had to say uh, earlier on. They're not prepared. You look at when they won it last time around; they were unbelievably well prepared. They had the time to prepare. They've got the tools. They've got the players, but they're just not firing. They're not match ready. And they've got to be really careful. And as you say, they've got a massive task. South Africa have every chance of winning it for once. They're usually the nearly men. But now they've got the tools, they've got the players, they've got every chance. That is an enormous game for England. And there's no way I would be backing them. <laughs> Forthright bumble. Adil Rashid bowled beautifully, as did Liam Livingston. Um, one for 33 in, in 10 overs. So given that it was at the Feroz Shah Cutler Stadium in Delhi, um, which favours uh, the spinners, Hami. Should Moen Ali have played? I don't want to be smarty pants after the event, but um, a third spinner for England might have been a better bet than than Curran or Wokes. Yeah, I remember saying before the before the game with, with John that, does Chris Wokes get the back in? Does he carry on? Uh, or does he come out the side? One thing I will say about Moen Ali is, if you've got no Ben Stokes, you have to play Moen Ali. Um, Moen's got yeah, obviously, the huge amount of game now. And I think his leadership qualities on the field, you know, with helping Josh Butler, being around you know, just the group, the respect he's got within the group. I think without Ben Stokes, I think you need Moen Ali on the field. Now, how you get him on the field has been the million-dollar question for England. You know, he was an easy, easy option to leave out. Back in the, the batting of Liam Livingston and taking his part-time spin. But for me... I would have played Chris, I would have played Moen Ali over Chris Wokes, but I would open up over Mark Wood. I think it's so important that we take power play wickets. And if we're gonna go at 18 over, like our you know, our bowlers like Wokes and Curran are going, then for me, you might as well go eight and over at 95 mile an hour with a view that you might get a, a wicket here or a wicket there, then all of a sudden somebody having to come in and fend off at 95 mile an hour and start their innings in the power play would be more difficult. So I think Moen Ali is a must to play, not just because of where they were playing in Delhi and the turning. I just think without Ben Stokes, that experienced man on the field, for me, Moen Ali had to play. One man who used to cop the blame for every bad day England ever had was David Milan, but at least he's justifying his inclusion and uh, that terrific hundred. Of course, against Bangladesh. Let's hear from David Milan. There's been a, a lot of strange narratives been around over the last couple of years. But um, yeah, look, 
I've played majority of my cricket for England has been T20 cricket and um, I've always said you know why I can play it like a T20 game if you want me to and just ask me to do what you need me to do and I'll, I'll do it and um, you know if I can be successful I can be successful but I feel like every series I'm, I'm under pressure so um, you know for me to to keep silencing people is all I can do um, you know if I can score as many runs as I can and, and help contribute to wins then um, hopefully eventually people's opinions might change. David Milan is still yet to convince some people at the age of 36 and after the year he's had six ODI hundreds. We'll talk about South Africa in a moment, Harmi, but I wanted to ask you about the six-day break now. Uh, when you looked at the schedule before the tournament started, you thought, oh, England will enjoy that. A nice six-day break after three games. But um, I'm a bit concerned that might be a bit long now. I think them net sessions could be, I think they'll be very, very quiet, very, very subdued. I'm sure there'll be heads will be down. I think they'll need one or two of the characters just to lift the lift the group. They might need some time away from each other and they might need to, to go away and sort of reflect individually what's happened so far because two defeats in the first three games, trying to defend your title against two out of the three games against sides you should be beaten. Then all of a sudden the pressure is now on when you come to, to play South Africa in Mumbai and then a couple of games time, England play Australia and the loser of that could be the ones that go home. So... I think from a, an England point of view, all the experienced cricketers they've got inside that dressing room need to stand up and be counted and take some responsibility over the next six years to make sure that when they come ready for South Africa, that England's air game comes. Because if they don't, South Africa will beat them and England will be out. Well, at the end of South Africa's massive 134-run victory against Australia, Nasser Hussain on commentary finished uh, the the match with the with the comment, South Africa are under the radar no longer. They began the tournament under the radar, that's for sure. And um, their bowling leader, Kahisa Rabada, said that that didn't bother them. We're just looking to, to play our best cricket uh, whenever we play a game. We're not, we're not worried about what statements we're making. We're only worried about the plans that we want to execute. Uh, we're still a long way away, but there are plenty of positives to to take into consider well, to take. Um, so that's a that's a good thing. Um, but uh, we're looking to to rock up the next game. Like I said, we'll see how uh, we feel. We want to improve. Look at our strengths. Look at our weaknesses, and look to brush up. Uh, but generally, I th I think we played nearly the perfect game of cricket. So it's just about leaving this behind once we leave that behind and focus on the next game. That's it. South Africa are going like a tank, Harmi, with 134-run victory over Australia and 102-run victory over Sri Lanka. But as you know, all you have to do to stop a tank is dig a big ditch. You just yeah. need to know where to dig it. England need to dig that ditch very, very deeply then because the, these South African side look as though they've got the right, the right players in the right places to be very effective in... Indian conditions. Quentin at the top is a master of, of, of power play cricket and Bavuma will bat for the for the, the, the deer if need be. And if they can keep wickets in hand, go on back end of innings, they are very, very destructive. So because of that, and the two spinners have started well. Maharaj has started really well. So because of that, then that was the weak for me, that was possibly their weak link was was did they have two good enough spin options but I think they have I think they've got 20 overs in them and Rabada is one of the best in the world so you know they've got all bases covered and yeah you've got to fancy that while this train is still going you know firmly on the right track Africa will take some beating they will 
You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison as we continue to look back at uh, all the latest Cricket World Cup action. And I'm delighted to say, as promised at the top of the show, we are joined by the one and only Brad Hogg, who will tell us what ails Australia. They are in all sorts of trouble, Hoggy. Uh, they're definitely in all sorts of trouble, but uh, India were just way too good at the start. And uh, in, in that first game that they played, they could, didn't handle the spin well. And then the next game against South Africa, um, South Africa just blew them apart with the bat and uh, they, they, they couldn't fight back. So for me, uh, I just think it's a, the lower order that uh, is the cause of the problem. And also Mitchell Marsh out at the top of the order, he's got a fire with David Warner. If we don't get off to a good start, like all teams uh, out the top of the order, you're always in trouble. Have you gone into this World Cup? Yeah, I was, I, I was of the opinion that, Australia's ability to bowl spin and their ability to play spin, especially when you play two games in Lucknow, two games in Chennai, that could be the dangerous part for Australia in this tournament. Because of the fixtures, the way they went, would you have took a frontline spinner, somebody like Nathan Lyon, to help Adam Zampa rather than just have Adam Zampa as your, your frontline spinner? Oh, look, you, you would have liked to have taken uh, someone like Nathan Lyon, but Nathan Lyon, I don't think, has played enough one-day cricket. I, I would have taken a uh, left-arm off-spinner over there because you've got Maxwell that can bowl a bit of part-time uh, right-arm off-spin. And as we can see now, he's the, he's the best bowler that uh, we've got over there at the present moment. He's the one that's able to hold it up and get a few wickets. So for me, it's a left-arm off-spinner that's turning the ball away from the, from the right-handed batsman because if you're going to play the likes of India in a final at the back end and India up front, they've got a lot of right-handed batsmen. There, there are very few teams there that got a lot of right uh, left-handers in the middle order. So for me, you need that bowler to take the ball away from the outside edge. So someone like a Kuhneman. You won't find too many captains halfway through a tournament or at the beginning of a tournament saying, yeah, we got the squad wrong. Uh, this is what Pat Cummins had to say about the 15 men that he has at his disposal. No, really happy with who we've got here. You know, there's obviously a couple of injuries that have forced our hand a little bit, but um, no, we, we wouldn't change any of our personnel. Well, of course you wouldn't, Pat. Uh, there's no bigger defender of Pat Cummins than me, Hoggy. Um, he's, I think, received some really unfair flack um, since he took over as captain. But I do have one massive reservation. I think he's very formulaic. And I think particularly against South Africa, he was defensive, unimaginative, uninspiring. The one thing you have to do against South Africa, against everyone, but especially South Africa because of their long tail, is take early wickets. But he just seems to be three for you, three for him, three for me. It's like he's worried about the back end of the innings at the beginning of the innings, or am I overreading it? Uh, look, I, I can agree with you. We'll go back to the Ashes since we're uh, in with an England audience as well. <laughs> the, the very first ball that I bowled, uh, that he bowled, uh, he had a deep point to Crawley. Now he was the third best bowler in the in the te um, in Test match cricket at that stage, and he's bowling against probably one of the uh, lower ranked opening batsmen. And the juke ball swings, and it, it was the uh, first couple of overs of the uh, of the series. You've got to have catches in place. And, um, yeah, for me, I, I just think he's a little bit defensive. And if you look over here in India, Hazelwood and Starkey are main white ball bowlers. But 
if you want to go for that extra spinner, Cummins is the man to go because you've got the likes of Stoinis that can uh, that can bowl some decent overs in the middle overs. Uh, he's also shown that he can open the bowling as well. So he gives you a, a, a little bit of an option there. If you want to go deep, you can also put Green in there as well. And if you had Ashton, a uh, uh, Ashton Agar over there, it even adds depth to the uh, batting lineup, so you can play a few more all-rounders as well. Huggy, what have Australia got to do now to get themselves in a position to qualify for the semi-finals? Because at the minute, they look possibly like England. They look a long way away. Yeah, look, both England and Australia look as though they're tired. And uh, it's surprising because there's a lot of players in both uh, both teams, in both of their squads that haven't played uh, in that Test Series, that Asher Series over there as well. So they should be fresh. They should be up for it. But for me, it looks as though Australia are pretty worn out at the present moment. They don't look switched on. And you go back to that squad as well. Uh, it's disappointing that they took two keepers over there. Alex Kerry is your main keeper. Have your keeper. You could have had Inglis over there as a backup for an injury, then bring him in. But you should have gone for another spinner there. I, ju I just think they've got the squad wrong. Uh, for me, Adam Zampa is the one that's got to stand up, as well as Mitchell Marsh. Zampa's been bowling poorly, especially um, early on. Zampa's got to step up. He's the main spinner. He's got to get wickets, but he's also got to keep it tight in the middle overs. And Mitchell Marsh has to get them off to a good start with David Warner. Uh, you can't have Travis Head coming back from injury out the top of the order. I don't think he'd be ready. And if we go back to there uh, without Mitchell Marsh firing, we're in trouble. I want to ask you about Manus Labashain, but first of all, let's hear from the man himself. I'm not here to sit and make excuses. We're playing the World Cup for Australia. Um, we have to be ready. We have to be better than that. And um, um, we have to bounce back and, and, and get this train rolling. People are down, but we also know we've got a job, right? Uh, like, yeah, we can be disappointed about this, this performance. We can be disappointed about lots of things, how we played. But the reality is, yeah, you can't sit and soak in the, the change rooms. We've got to take action and we've got to get our, um, our tournament underway. And, and I don't know how um, it's my first World Cup, but I don't know how the, the point system works, but... We're going to need to win every game from here, I assume, or, or at least very, very close to get into that four. But once again, you know, it's the reason Australia's won the World Cup, I think, five times, is because well, we play well under pressure and we haven't started well, but um, this is the beginning, not the end. Well, it's pretty simple, Manus. It's two points for a win and none for a loss. It's, um, <laughs> it's not, much, not much to grasp there. I just want to ask you about preparation. Uh, Hoggy, because it, it's really strange for me. Australia played South Africa in a five-match series without five top players. Manus went to South Africa for that series as a backup, not in the Provisional World Cup squad, got a gig in the first game as a concussion replacement, scored heaps of runs, which forced the selectors to change their mind, having decided they didn't want to play Labuschagne and Smith together in the middle order, and then three more games, so eight games in a short space of time, three more against India. It just seemed a bit, oh, well, helter-skelter, certainly schedule-wise, but there seemed to be some confused thinking rather than sticking to what you had decided to do with, with the squad, with the team. Yeah, there's been a lot of chop and change. And even in our first game, you go in your first game with your, your main 11. Generally, you don't go to the second game with big changes. And the big change was Kerry. Yes, uh, Green and Stoinis were... Um, Stoinis came in for Green in the second match. But Stoinis is probably more of a one-day cricketer than what Green is. So I can understand that. But swapping your keeper so early on, 
that means that you're in trouble. That means that you're overthinking. And just as you said there, Neil, the changes, the chop and changes, the players not going over there, preparing for the World Cup, um, having five players out, it's not ideal preparation before a World Cup, especially when you're going over to India on foreign soil. If it was in England, where we're used to those conditions, you could sort of think, yeah, well, we'll go along with that. But no, you've got to have your main squad there. They've got to be prepared for the World Cup on Indian uh, Indian conditions. So for me, I, I just think their preparation has been uh, really poor. But you can sit there and look at it. England had uh, Joe Root and Stokes going over playing in the IPL. Australia have got a lot of players playing in the IPL, and a lot of them use that IPL for preparation for tournaments like this on Indian home soil. So it's not as though they haven't got the experience. It's just that they've uh, been there, uh, they've got there unprepared mentally and unprepared physically. And that's what it looks to me with the way that they've, uh, they're have they walking around the field when they're in the field. They're not the alert Australians that uh, I'm used to. And Hoggy, just on Alex Carey, you mentioned that. Does that decision to leave him out after the first game sum up where Australia are at at this moment in time? Because now you've only got a 14-man squad. You've took 15-man 15 15-man squad for two keepers. You drop one after one game. He's out of the tournament. So... Does that tell you everything about where Australia is at at the moment? Well, it definitely does. And I think uh, Kerry, he's a left-hander, and we don't have that left-hander in the middle order. You've got David Warner up the top, and uh, now you've got Mitchell Stark, the left-hander down out around about number eight. And uh, for me, Alex Kerry is a very good player of spin. You've got to give him that confidence. You've got to say, you're playing the first five games. You're our main keeper. You're very, very important down that lower order with the bat. We know what you can do. It's just a matter of about getting him in the right mindset to go out there and say, right, uh, let's sweep here, let's reverse sweep, play those sweeps. If you remember the test series that he uh, that we just last played over in India, he got out with a few sweeps and there was a lot of discussion about that. Well, I think that's playing in the back of his mind. He's got to put the punters out there that are making these comments about his batting uh, just in the foresight. Don't worry about it. Just go out and play your game. And if you can sweep both sides of the wicket, you're putting that spinner off the off his line and length. And what you're doing is making him change his length. And you might be only getting one as the left-handed batsman or, or that batsman at the other end. But what you're doing is you're making a difference for the other batsman who's uh, going to be facing the next ball if you get off strike. And that presents boundary opportunities. So for me, I just think they've got it wrong, uh, Australia. And they pulled the plug or the pull, pulled the... Um, uh, the line too early on Alex Carey. There's a lot of people saying that Carey's demise ha has started uh, with the fallout and the noise and the repercussions from the Bearstow stumping in the ashes at Lords, and that he just, he's actually a, quite a decent human being and a, and a decent chap. And, he, and it's actually it, it quite sensitive, I, I think. And do you think that there's any possibility that that's true? I, I think he would have been feeling the pinch, and uh, I was one with uh, that was disappointed with that uh, particular dismissal. Look, uh, Bearstow was out. There's no two ways about it, but it just caused a huge ma media storm over there. I just thought the ethics with it uh, and the timing of it was wrong, and I just thought Australia could have called uh, called Bearstow back on that particular incident. But but going back to your point. That would be playing on Alex Kerry. He's a nice guy. Uh, he's he's one that wants to lead. Uh, he, he's one that uh, really relishes a strong reputation. He wants to play the game fair on the field. And uh, when you do something that you think's fair on the field, then all of a sudden it creates that much controversy and you are a bit of a feeler uh, like he is. It is going to play on the back of your mind. And uh, hopefully Australia 
in the background have given him a little bit of help to get over that because it can play on your mind. And you're probably right, it is playing on his mind. That's a question that I might ring up his manager and ask him, is he okay? Okay, finally, chances of Australia top four? Uh, for me, I think New Zealand, India, South Africa are going to be in the top three. I, I'm thinking that Pakistan, with their up and down type form, I, I think Pakistan will uh, end up being in the four. But in saying that, I think this could be South Africa's year. If they're going to win a World Cup, this is their best chance. <laughs> They'll mm. find a way to mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> Not this time. Not this time. Brad Hogg, thank you so much for your time. Fantastic. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. Yeah, thanks very much, guys, and uh, keep up the good work. Hopefully England and Australia can turn it around. That's former Australian uh, spinner Brad Hogg uh, looking at uh, the Australians' struggles at the start of uh, the tournament. Okay, a quick chat then about the biggest sporting occasion in cricket and, in fact, in sport. Uh, It generates uh, one of the largest television audiences around the world of any sporting event in the world, India against Pakistan. It was a one-sided anti-climax in the end, with Pakistan collapsing from 155 for two to 191 all out, and then Rohit Sharma blasting 86 to delight the 130,000 fans um, in uh, the world's largest cricket stadium. Talking of which, um, this is what uh, Pakistan Director of Cricket, Mickey Arthur, had to say about playing at the Narendra Modi Stadium. It didn't seem like an RCC event tonight, let's be brutally honest. It seemed like a bilateral series. It seemed like a BCCI event. Um, I didn't hear Dildal Pakistan coming through the microphones uh, too often tonight. So, so yes, that does play a role, but I'm not going to use that as an excuse because for us it was about living the moment, it was about the next ball, and it was about how we were going to combat um, the Indian the Indian players tonight. Is that right for a World Cup? Uh, look, I, I, I don't think I'll, I can't comment on that just yet. I don't want to get fined. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey, Mickey, it is a BCCI event. Yeah. Come on, the ICC are just there to serve drinks <laughs> and canapes. What you must have known that, Mickey. Yeah, of course he knew it. <clears throat> of course he knew it. He just didn't want to say it because he didn't want to lose <clears throat> lose some US dollars. It was a, a great occasion. Don't get me wrong, and Pakistan looked as though they were in a decent position. But if I was Mickey Arthur, I'd be sitting my team down and saying, right, when we come back again in the final, there's 130,000 people. The pressure's now on them to win the World Cup final in their own back garden in front of all these people. We've seen it. We've experienced it. We've sampled it. We know what it's going to be like. My challenge to my team would be, can I get you back in this stadium against India? and see what the pressure's like for 130,000 people being on them to win the World Cup final in their own back garden. That would be my challenge if I was Mickey Arthur to my team, because I think Pakistan can do that. And I think, you know what? I think it might be, there'll be a lot more pressure on India. Okay, India cruising to the last four, uh, you would think. You still got Pakistan to finish in the top four? Yeah, I've still got them to finish in the top four. I think uh, the occasion beat them. That would be a challenge if I was Mickey to make sure that we finish in the top four. We get back to the stadium, we get back to that game and we put pressure and see if they can do it when it means something and in the final. So I think Pakistan get there. England are going to have to work so hard. I, I really, I'm, I'm struggling to believe that England can can get there because of our bowling problems that we've got. Um, New Zealand look a good side. South Africa look a good side. And, and obviously India are running away with it at this moment in time. I just wonder if South Africa and India have gone too hard too early. And then 
all of a sudden, if they do qualify and they drop off, can they get the foot back on the pedal? And that will be the, the question. England won the World Cup in 2019 because they had to win every game with five games to go. They're going to have to win every game now from six or seven games to go. And that is going to be a huge challenge for England and Australia. Well, the occasion might have beaten Pakistan, but Jasprit Bumrah, my goodness me, oh. how good does he look after a year out of the game? Maybe we'll what talk a, more about him next week. What eh? a ball to get rid of his back. Unbelievable. Thank you. Naveen did exactly the same to Joss Butler. If Jasprit Bumrah had bowled that to Joss Butler, we would have seen it every single day of the week. So, no, it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a brute of a delivery. And uh, for more fallout to India against Pakistan, you can download the following on podcast where Sam Ellard and Harmi dissected all the action from Ahmedabad in more detail. Uh, you can find it on the following on podcast feed. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and the one and only Steve Harmison. Um, and for more uh, from uh, all the World Cup matches, do keep an eye out for following on podcasts throughout the tournament. Uh, next up. We'll reflect on the retirement of an England legend as Sir Alistair Cook calls time on a magnificent 20-year career. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. If you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, now available via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm delighted to say that we are joined now by Essex head coach Anthony McGrath uh, to talk about the last five years, actually. It was five years ago that Sir Alistair Cook retired from international cricket with all the plaudits and all the credit and deservedly so. He he said that he was going to play a season or two for Essex, and uh, I think he surprised himself uh, by playing for a full five and playing so well. But before we hear from, from Anthony McGrath, let's just uh, remind ourselves of uh, the esteem in which his teammates uh, held Sir Alistair Cook. Here's Joe Root. Going to enjoy life on the farm, mate. 
It's been a hell of a career. Um, clearly what you did for England, we all know how special that was and was topped off with an, um, a memorable finish and a memorable start. And everything in between um, was, well, the greatest ever. What you've achieved and everything has been incredible. And to, to have had the opportunity to play so many test matches alongside you um, under your captaincy and even get to boss you around a little bit towards the end was really great fun and it's nice to know you make a, a friend for life through that as well so um, what you've given back to the game going back and playing county cricket as well is exceptional I know you thoroughly enjoyed your time at Essex and being with the boys and getting to see the county game which you missed as a young lad and uh, get to play with all those lads that you grew up playing with so um, it's great that you've been able to enjoy that aspect of, of the game too um, and I hope you really thoroughly enjoy your retirement and I look forward to um, well, at least a couple of beers or a nice red at some point. That was Joe Root uh, paying tribute once again to uh, Sir Alastair Cook. Anthony McGrath is uh, with us. He just listened to that. It's astonishing in many ways. It, it really intrigued so many people. Fans, Essex fans, of course, loved having uh, the chef around for, for five years. But um, provide us with some insight as to why what motivated him? Why he, he played for another five years? Um, well, as you rightly said at the outset, I think I took over from Chris Silverwood in 2018 and his plan was to play for a year, maximum two. But yeah, I think he just really enjoyed it. I think he surprised himself. I think the way he finished with England was a, a bit of a fairy tale because he'd, he'd come under a bit of criticism for his place in the team. And Harmy knows you know, better than anyone. I think it can take your toll if you're playing international cricket for so long. So I think he were going to have a year, get his family around us so that the young'uns could see him play. But from there, I think he just got that love back. I think he enjoyed playing with the lads. He were obviously competitive as a team, which helps. He were doing well. And um, the plan was at each end of each year for us to have a chat. And he kept saying, no, I'll do one more. And five years down the line, here we are. And, um, probably going into August, we were pretty sure he was going to finish, but you never know because he had that smile on his face. He'd had a month off during the 50 overs and um, we're thinking, yeah, he could carry on here. But um, no, look, I think he's he's made the right decision. Uh, I know he has. But for us to have him for five years has just been incredible. And um, I, I think, I mean, the question you asked, how has he done it? I think just the love of the game, his drive, you know, he was still winning the fitness tests up until this year. He wouldn't let anyone beat him. You know, Harmy's played many games with him. He's one of them who always wants to be the best. And he said to me on Thursday night before the announcement come out, he didn't want to be not the best player. And I think, um, you know, when you get to his age, he's, he's wanted to go out at the top. And it's just a shame for him. We couldn't kind of win the championship right at the end, which would have been a fitting end for him. But he's had so many highs. He's been a, a brilliant ambassador. And Mags, he's, he seemed to have done it. He's done it the opposite way that everybody else does it. Because you you come into account setup. You play five years, you do well, you get picked for England. And he's gone and done it the other way, which in the way he walked off the field at the at the end, uh, at the end at, at Essex and he got out. You I think all of us that know Sir Alistair really well knew that it, it was the end. But there was no fanfare. There's no you know, look at me, I'm retiring and 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 all that goes with it. He walked off and he, he announced his retirement literally two or three weeks after the season. Just that tells you everything about him, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, he was adamant that he didn't want any distraction. I think because we were going for the title as well, he didn't want it to distract from that. And 
people within the club and supporters would always be asking him daily, are you retiring? But as you just said, he didn't want it to be about him, you know, walking off at Northampton, him knowing that's it, you know, as you said, speaks volumes. So it was all about just the team really and, and going out well. I mean, the, the disappointing thing for him, I think his, uh, his kids were going to come from school to watch his last innings, but we managed to follow on and get balled out. So <laughs> they didn't get a chance to see his last innings, which didn't last very long, but um, they've had so many memories and um, yeah, it does speak volumes about how he, how he wanted to go. Mags, about, about him in the last five years, when he's in the Essex dressing room, so young players coming into it, after the initial shock of, wow, that's Sir Alistair Cook, and seeing him as, as the sort of person he is. But what's it been like around the country? Because I'm sure going into EMs and opposition dressing rooms, this icon figure, who for me is one of the greatest ambassadors for our country when it comes to not only England play, England captain, what was it like going around the country when you had Sir Alistair Cook at the top of your order? Well, I think he's, he's, he's very well respected, as you say. Obviously, still a very good player. So the the younger bowlers could be intimidated. But the great thing about Chef as well, and you know, he was happy to pass on his knowledge. There was countless times where opposition coaches or captains would ask if he would speak to the young players at the end of the game, come in the dressing room after just to discuss things, and he was more than happy to do that. As you said, you know, great players have come back and played county cricket, but sometimes it can be so hard to motivate yourself after the highs of international cricket. But he was superb with it. You know, it would never seem to chore for him. He really, really did enjoy it. And I think that's probably what shone through throughout the, the country that he was loving playing. So, um, yeah, I mean, he was very well, you know, respected. And when you've got a player like that in your team, you know that, um, you know, if he gets in, uh, he's going to put pressure on the opposition. And he has that kind of aura around him. So, yeah, huge, uh, a huge benefit to us. We heard Joe Root talking there to Rory Dollard um, from the Press Association, uh, and he started off by saying that he was going to enjoy his time on the farm. How much do you think um, Sir Alistair might still pop into the club and help the youngsters sort out their flying elbow? <laughs> it depends um, if Alice kicks him out. I mean, I think once he's back every single day, she might be sending him out more quickly than he thinks. But it, look, he's going to have loads of commitments, and he? he's got he's got the radio stuff. He's obviously got the farm. I'm sure he's going to be in demand. But I know he wants to be uh, still involved in some some capacity. And um, hopefully that's with Essex. But I'm sure other teams will be around because, you know, he's got so much experience. I don't think it's just about his technical stuff he can pass on. As a batsman, he's been in absolutely every scenario you could want. Opening the bat in, he's had highs, he's had loads, he's faced fast bowlers, spinners, he's had press on his case, he's done everything. So he can pass on so much knowledge. And also he's he's a smart guy and he's humble and people listen when he speaks. So um he's got so much to offer, not just to the the you know, the cricket clubs, but cricket in general. And Mags, Ben Stokes said earlier, there was a lot of talk earlier in the in the summer about Sir Alistair Cook and players, will we see another player like Sir Alistair Cook? And a lot of people put two and two, go, two, and two together and more or less were making it up that Sir Alistair Cook would never have played under Ben Stokes. I think that's nonsense. I think the player that Alistair Cook was and is would get in every team, no matter how many sixes and fours you want to try and hit them, because these players adapt. How would you see the legacy of, of, of Sir Alistair Cook during that England time? And also, do you think there are players that are coming through that can force their way into the England group, that player like um, the great man, Alistair Cook? Yeah, I think 
any sport in any great players can play in any team because they adapt, they're smart, they find out a way. You know, he's joked himself about the basketball era and he probably wouldn't have got a game, but of course he would. He'd have found a way to to play and, and, and be in that team. So I think the red ball, when we started, or certainly, you know, when I started, you had to be good at red ball to get a white ball opportunity. And now it's kind yeah. of switched on its head, hasn't it? You know, players are playing all kinds of shots. But I think sometimes we overlook just how good the England batsmen are to play that way. They've done hours of technical work and they're very good defensive players. But what they are doing is is probably practising different shots than we used to practise. I mean, you know, back in the auction nets, it was top elbow and defend and, you know, almost don't play, don't play a shot till May. Whereas now it's completely different. So I guess it's it's your environment, how you, how you grow up. But if Alistair was growing up in this era, he'd be one of the best teams, uh, one of the best players in this current team, without doubt, because uh, he would have adapted. He can play a fastball in spinners and everything in between. So I guess your question on young players coming through, I think there's an excitement within the county game, seeing how England are playing and going about it. And um, I think county cricket's strong. I think there's there's a lot of players there. Obviously, white ball is is the main, I guess, uh, monetary opportunity for younger players. So I think we've got to be careful with that with test cricket. But what Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum have done, I think, have, have really made test cricket stand up and be exciting again. So certainly I've had... You know, the red ball game this year, there's been a lot of excitement about it. Players are wanting to play it. So I know it's reported that players are, are shying away from red ball cricket, but only from my opinion, I haven't seen that at all this year. It's been actually to the contrary. Obviously, I'll, my 15-year-old son's godfather is Sir Alistair Cook. And you know, his humbleness, the way he goes about his life, the way he goes about his, his business, you wouldn't think you'd played 160-odd test matches for England. You wouldn't think he was 12,500 test match runs. You wouldn't think he's one of the greatest players that's ever played cricket for England when you share a dressing room. And is that his biggest quality? Was that was that his biggest quality? Without doubt, yeah. I mean, you've played with some superstars and been around superstars. And when they come back into different environments, it's tough for them. And, and they can be seen as arrogant and they don't want to integrate. But Alistair would be as welcomed at number 10 Downing Street and probably the Golden Fleece in Chelmsford pub. You know, he'd just fit in wherever he was. And as you said, he'd never really talk about himself. It wasn't He wasn't that kind of guy, but always happy to help people. And so he was just a top, top, top man. I mean, we're talking like he's passed away, but he's, um, <laughs> he is. He's just a, a super guy. And for him to do all the achievements and, and get the accolades you said, and to go about his work the last five years, and what a, a top human being. Anthony McGrath, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Have a profitable uh, winter, and uh, very best thank of you. luck without Sir Alistair next summer. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Go well. That was the one and only Essex head coach, Anthony McGrath, and the great man he is. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler, Steve Harmison. Right, before we talk about uh, cricket's reintroduction to the Olympics for the first time since 1900. I think, Harmy, it would be remiss of me not to ask you to pay your own tribute to the one and only Sir Alistair. Yeah, he's a, a great human being, like we've just discussed with, with Anthony McGraw. I was there right at the very start. Um, I'd met Cookie before before the when he came into Nagpur. He played with my younger brother in the, in the World Cup. 
um, and playing under 19 cricket with him. Um, and obviously Liam Plunkett, Mark Stoneman from from Durham and stuff like that. And then when obviously Marcus Triscothic went home from that India trip, Andrew Fintoff was captain. Jimmy Anderson and Sir Alistair flew over from, I think they were in the Caribbean. I think they'd flown over from Barbados. And, you know, Fred was like, we've got to make sure that this young lad needs looking after, integrated into the group. And the first room he came to was was ours. The dartboard was up. He learned how to play darts. Him and Jimmy came in, freshly faced after a trip from Barbados. We had had a tough time in the in the in the build up to that India series, especially with Marcus going home and and um he hit the ground running. He got hundred in the in his first game, he got hundred in his last game. And in between time, he was a brilliant ambassador for this country, not only as a player, as a leader. Um, and like we were just talking to Mags about, for me, his biggest quality was his his humbleness, his ability to fit in, in every single surroundings that he was in, and also not for one minute you'd think he was one of the greatest players that we've ever produced by the way he spoke. He was a, a he's a wonderful man and somebody who I think the game still needs to have some part of Suraj to cook in it because, like Mag said, he's been in through every scenario. He's been in every situation, but he's also done it with such a level level head and calmness. That I think as a as a leader, that's what you want. So hopefully. He will still be in cricket for years and years to come. Um, and um, I hope he enjoys his retirement because he, he deserves it. He's been a, a great ambassador for our game. First time I ever spent any personal time with him rather than professional time was when we were all in Antigua. Yeah. Was it three three years ago? And uh, there he was in a in a loud floral print shirt, um, having a scotch and ice at the bar and chatting to everybody. And I just remember thinking, you're not the man I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> No, he's not. But I remember at the end of that trip, he was, he was obviously he's a fitness freak. He hadn't missed a game in 160 test matches for England. Um, and he had three weeks drinking with me and he popped his car from up the hill. So <laughs> it was, yeah, I think he was ready for retirement from international cricket. But you're right. What you see is not always what you get. And with Alistair, the person that was great on the field, he was even better as a person off the field. And that for me is the best I can say about somebody who I've, I've known for such a long time and had a huge amount of respect for and hope he enjoys his retirement. Indeed. Cricket is due to be included in the Olympic programme again, right? So for the first time um, in more than a century, and the IOC Executive Board recommended the inclusion of uh, T20 as the format of choice for the LA Games in 2028. And uh, IOC President Thomas Bach says uh, the sport is becoming more popular in the US, especially with the success of Major League Cricket this summer. We have uh, also, you know, a growing uh, Indian community uh, in uh, the United States, uh, so that uh, it is uh, very attractive for LA and it's very attractive for the uh, Olympic movement. That was um, IOC President Thomas Bach and the IOC's sports director, Kit McConnell also explained um, what the plans were at this stage, uh, not confirmed, um, for the sport at the 2028 LA Games. All of the team sports have been proposed as a 16 tournament, but subject to finalisation at the start of 2025. On the qualification system, no no detailed discussion regarding that. Those are finalised around 2025 as well. Normally the host country is one of the teams in the, uh, in the team sports, and then we look at a balance of global strength and, and uh, regional representation. Ahami, there was some discussion about the USA getting a, a place in the six-team tournament as hosts. 
Uh, nice idea in principle, but I think that would um, make a little bit of a mockery of it. I mean, what, what, good thing, bad thing? Six teams, six G20s playing for a gold medal at the Olympics? I don't get the six teams. I really don't get the six teams. I'm tr- struggling to work out how they come to that proposal from an individual sports point of view. Um, it, I, well, I don't think that would work, especially if one of them has to be the host nation, America, getting into that World Cup as a six team. Well, then where do you go? Is it England, Australia, India, Pakistan? You know, we've a lot of these. A lot of the World Cup goes on. England wouldn't be in it because it's it would be the great it would be Great Britain. So. I think there's that there would have to be some element of flexibility on that because then how does the West Indies come to there? Do they get in it and it's on their doorstep? So does it then go to Trinidad and Barbados in, in the islands? I, I don't think six will be anywhere near near enough. And, and how do they work out whether England are going to play in it or is it the grit? Is it obviously it's going to be GB? So I think there's a lot more water to go under the bridge on that front if it is just six teams and one of them is the, the United States. I'm not sure that gets off the ground, to be honest. No, I don't think it does either. A very quick word about Kane Williamson. More pertinently, after his six-month battle to uh, recover fitness to make it into the World Cup squad, he then cops a throw from the field on the thumb and fractures it. Just like you couldn't make it up, could you? But the uh, the, the decision to keep him there... Um, in the hope that he'll be able to play in the last couple of games in the group stages, they reckon it'll be a sort of... 15 to 20 day recovery or uh, they're hoping for two weeks, but um, it does leave New Zealand a bit thin, doesn't it? Tim Saudi's still not back. He's also injured. Yeah. It, it leaves them thin on and leadership as well. I know that they've got some good leaders on that, in that team, but to have Williamson and Saudi out, it is, it's heartbreaking for Ken because of how hard he's worked. If you come back from an SEL injury and the time he's done just shows you how hard Ken Williamson's worked to get back. And then when he does come back, he looks a million dollars as usual, and then he gets one. He gets one on the thumb, you know, run to the non-striker's end. So it's one of them gambles. I think New Zealand have to take because if you have got any chance of getting Kim Williamson back for the knockout stages with a view that you're going to qualify, I think you have to take that gamble because he's too good of a player. And I think we've seen as he's come back after having such a long time out, he didn't look rusty at all. And I think if you can get him for the semi-final and potentially a final, because New Zealand have been in quite a few finals recently, I think it's a gamble worth taking. Okay, I'm moving on. You're on record on this show as saying you think as many as 20 of the world's top cricketers might uh, consider retirement from the ODI format um, after this tournament. Uh, South Africa's wicketkeeper opening batsman Quinton de Kock is one who retired from the format before the tournament started. He was asked to explain why he would no longer play 50 over cricket after the World Cup. For myself, it's I've been doing it for a couple of years now. It's, obviously, I found it quite tiring. It's been a long time for myself, but I'm sure there's still a lot of guys, a lot of guys, a lot of youngsters coming through the ranks. Um, guys still at school growing up, they still would love to play this format. Um, and I highly recommend that they find a way to keep it going um, because there's a lot of guys with big ambitions who want who want this format to carry on going um, which I think it, they need they need to find a place and a time for it to happen. It's uh, Quinton de Kock. Maybe it's just because I've known him for a long time but um, <laughs> not exactly a ringing endorsement for 50 over cricket is it? No, he's on one hand saying come on youngsters you've got to play this format while the other one's saying 
Yeah, we've got to try and find a place of it because we're not interested in playing it as well. So I, I, I think there'll be a lot of people retire from 50 over cricket after this World Cup. I think in world in the world game as well now. I think we've got a lot of you know a lot of older players playing at this World Cup. There's quite a lot of 30 somethings playing the World Cup. So I think that's why they'll retire as well. But I'll also they need to find a way of of looking after 50 over cricket. And if if it means playing a hell of a lot less then I think playing a hell of a lot less is better than a lot of players not playing it at all. So I think there's, you know, there's work to do from the ICC and the MCC point of view to make sure 50 over cricket does exist, even if it is just in small amounts. OK, and uh, news from Canterbury is that Kent have uh, replaced one long-serving uh, long player as captain, Sam Billings, with another one, Daniel Bell-Drummond. And uh, Harry Chatley has been appointed the new chair of Yorkshire. I mention that because uh, we wish him all the very best and we we wish Yorkshire all the very best. And here we go, Harmy, on to the final word. And um, this is my choice. Following the woes of the Mongolian women's team, which I mentioned uh, last week, who conceded 350 in a, a couple of official T20 internationals, comes the news that... The Argentinian women scored 427 for one against Chile in an official T20 international. And uh, I couldn't help my eye being taken by the bowling figures of Florencia Martinez, who bowled one over, which cost 52 runs and included 17 no balls. Your thoughts? Yeah, words fail me, to be honest. I know I bowled a few but few wides at Lila Kill and by the bowler, I think in an 18-19 ball over, but I think when somebody's bowling 17 no balls, it's not exactly 20-20, isn't it? It's more 40-40 with the amount of time that you have to do with it, the, the, uh, the replacing no balls. But I've got one for you, Manners. I'm coming back at you this week. I'm going, I'm seeing your Argentina and I'm going with Mohamed Nabi. How many, how many nations are great friend from the cricketer, Nick Friend tweeted last night and it caught me eye and I couldn't stop laughing. Um, John Norman said three, which I was quite baffled at. Um, but Mohamed Nabi beat England and he he beat a number of nations. I could not believe when I seen it. So what do you think that was? 23. 23. 43 different nations Mohamed Nabi's beaten in his international career. That, for me, is cricket. I really love that because <laughs> it shows that He's played against you know, the very, very best in England, but he's also played against the, where we are trying to take cricket around the world and seeing some of the names on the list. I was like, I didn't even think they even played cricket and they, they existed. So Mohamed Nabi, good on you for beating England because you know that stat there alone tells you why we love this beautiful game. It's played for everybody, not just by 10 countries. Um, and he went past 43 different nations in victory yesterday. Good on him. Astonishing. And seven divisions of the ICC. I'm not surprised um, that uh, I, I, I am surprised. <laughs> I'm completely staggered that it's 43. Uh, you've been listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Mantle, and former England fast bowler Steve Harbison. And if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed now available via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back at a similar time next week. But for now, this has been another edition of the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 